This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 27, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Hate crime legislation winding its way through Congress has already received the stamp of approval from President Obama. But hate crime laws sacrifice key constitutional protections. They have a chilling effect on controversial speech. So says Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Well, it's an opportunity for a lot of politicians to posture, uh, to take a stance against hate, uh, and it's an opportunity for them to pass laws and just make themselves look as if they're solving a problem, and it's it's a, it's a very popular thing uh, to be for, and it's difficult to be against because, you know, in a quick soundbite environment, it's like, why would anybody oppose a hate crimes law? But... Uh, there's lots of reasons to be opposed to this type of legislation. The number one reason is it's totally unnecessary. Any violent act that you can think of uh, is already against the law, let me tell you. And there's already uh, you know, severe penalties in our law against all types of, of violence. So you can get into these hate crimes discussions and get into the nitty-gritty, but very quickly you lose sight of the fact that we already have Plenty of laws on the books that prevent all types of violence, and the more you get into the nitty-gritty of hate crimes, you kind of lose sight of that basic idea. The argument that is frequently offered is that some crimes, when the motivation is learned or made public, has a psychic impact on the community uh, surrounding uh the commission of this crime. Well, with respect to some hate crimes, I think that's undeniably true. But uh, it's not unique to hate crimes either. There's other other crimes that are uh, motivated by different emotions, jealousy, uh, greed, what have you, that also impacts the wider community. When um, when a child is abducted from a small town, it's not just that child and his family that's affected. Suddenly, everybody in the family in that community feels affected. I was testifying on Capitol Hill two years ago, uh, and it happened that the hearing was held the day after the Virginia Tech incident. And I use that as an example to show that, you know, we didn't know who was responsible for that crime at that time, but it was, an, it was a perfect example of showing how, not again, not just the individual victims in that shooting and their families were affected, the entire Virginia Tech campus was affected. So, yes, some crimes, uh, hate crimes affect uh, a broader community, but it's not unique to hate crimes. Other vicious crimes uh, have a broader impact as well. This law is called the, the Hate Crimes Prevention Act, and this is another problem with these laws is uh, people think that... You know, if you think about it just a few seconds, you think, oh, well, this is good. These types of things will be prevented. But again, anybody who is already inclined to pick up a gun to shoot another person, to pick up a a knife to stab another person, they're not going to lay down the gun or knife just because Congress has passed some new law. These people are already inclined to violate homicide statutes. So the fact that we have a new law passed by the Congress is not going to prevent anything. It's another way the politicians are just playing on people's emotions with these kinds of laws. Cato Senior Fellow Nat Hentoff refers to uh, legislation that creates hate crimes as thought crimes laws, but there isn't any punishment unless there is an actual underlying crime of violence, right? That's right. Um, where the chilling effect uh, of these laws comes in is that let's, in a typical violent offense, the criminal is not 
expressing his thoughts as he's committing the crime. There are very few crimes where somebody takes a baseball bat and says, you know, I hate Asians as he's hitting the guy over the head so that it becomes apparent why he's beating this person up. So what happens is, is when you have these hate crimes laws on the books and there's pressure to prosecute the person, not just for assault and battery or not just for murder, but as a hate crime, it forces the prosecutors and investigators to delve into the accused background so that they can gather evidence to show that it wasn't just an ordinary murder, it was a hate crime. So they will start going into the accused background, they'll find out what magazines he subscribes to, what internet sites are are, are um, saved on his computer, they'll start interviewing his friends and co-workers to see what his worldview is. So it kind of gets the apparatus of the state into people's lives to investigate, to gather evidence as to what their worldview is. And so it, it does have a chilling effect in that respect. The, the, the government is going to get involved to find out what people's motivations, prejudices, biases are. And so it does, that's where the thought crime aspect of uh, this law comes into play. The good news is that we don't have to get the state involved into this stuff. We do not have to get the jury involved into why the person committed the crime. Again, all of these violence acts are already against the law, and our trials and juries should be focusing on who committed the crime rather than getting into the more elusive question of why he committed the crime. It's not necessary. What are the constitutional issues? There are several. Uh, the first one is the federal government should not be involved in federalizing crimes that are already on the books at the state and local level. The federal government under our Constitution is a government of limited and enumerated powers. Uh, under the Tenth Amendment, that means basic crime fighting is to be reserved by to the state and local government. So this kind of gets the federal government involved in federalizing crimes, and it undermines that constitutional principle of federalism. In the year 2000, the Supreme Court invalidated the Violence Against Women Act, and one of the rationales for that ruling was that if the federal government can get involved in prohibiting gender-biased crimes, uh, there's nothing that would prevent the federal government from getting into all types of violent offenses. So we don't want uh, the federal government federalizing uh, crimes for that reason. Second, as Nat Hentoff points out, every time the federal government does federalize a crime that's already on the books at the state and local level, it in entails uh, and jeopardizes the uh, double jeopardy principle of our Constitution. Uh, so those are the two most important constitutional protections that are undermined by hate crimes legislation. Tim Lynch is director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.